Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. You beat the rain. Good job. You got here early. It was so beautiful coming in today. Um, my name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors. I'm just uh, curious. Are you all ready for Christmas? You ready to go? Yeah, you're. Uh, we're on. Oh, no, some of you are like, no, I am not ready. Uh, I am like on Myers Briggs. I'm a perceiver, right? I can see you, and you're like, I don't get energized until two days before Christmas. And uh, so I just feel the juice is starting up right now. I've got 25 people to buy for. And, you know, so I, some of you out there, I can see you right there. In fact, you're going to have a hard time concentrating today because you're already thinking now of what you're going to do after church, where you're going to hit, uh, and so on. But remember, this is about Jesus and his birthday. So, uh, so let's uh, focus in. Anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program is uh, a green and white message note sheet. I realize if you're, you're here every week, you know that. But if you're brand new, this may be news to you, and you'll definitely want to uh, have that to follow along today. So if you're ready to go, um, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your place at this season of the year where we celebrate the time when, when you became one of us, that we might become like you. And so, Lord, we just uh, we pray that today as we look into your word, as we explore kind of these kingdom prophecies and, and uh, we see how you are sort of the, the ultimate prophet, priest, or king, we pray that today that you would help us to understand what it be, means to be part of the ultimate kingdom. We pray it in your name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today. It's a Sunday afternoon. It's, uh, it's kind of a cool day. It's, um, it's actually in the early spring, and they're at elevation. Uh, they're, they're in the low, low mountains. And, uh, and so it's about sunset, and, and uh, in the distance, we were to see these, these two men. Um, they're walking in the distance, and they're heading off into the sunset, um, and if we were to draw closer to them, uh, we may begin to pick up from their body language that, that something is not quite right. And, and honestly, if we could zero in, kind of be a fly on the wall, so to speak, and listen to their conversation, um, it becomes clear quickly that these, these two men are depressed. Um, they're, they're discouraged. In fact, if you were to talk to them, they might use the word devastated. Uh, all their lives they've been waiting for, for this, this weekend, this, what they thought was going to happen. Um, and and it, they really believed that, that this week their ship was going to finally come in. But it was not meant to be. And with a suddenness and a violence that they never saw coming, um, the blow hit. And they're, they're both devastated. Uh, they don't know what to do. Their heads are hanging, and as they're talking, walking along, uh, they're wondering what this means, what their future is, and they're completely discouraged. Little do they know that around the corner, around the bend, um, their life is about to change again. That very shortly, their life is going to take a major turn. Uh, but this time, this time, um, it's actually for the better. Well, today, this is Christmas weekend, and uh, today we are uh, continuing this series that we've been in for the last uh, couple months that's called Prophets, Priests, and Kings, Life Lessons from the Kingdom of Israel. For those of you who are new, um, even though uh, today we're kind of wrapping up this series, it's uh, the tenth and final message, but it's actually a great time to, to jump on board. Um, but just just a little, a little kind of a little bit of backstory about this series. Um, what we've been doing in this series is going back in time to what we have called the Kingdom Era of Israel. It's a it's a, a season that in the history of Israel that, that lasts about four hundred years. It starts with the, uh, the rise of the very first king. His name is King, uh, uh, king Saul, about 1,000 years before Jesus is born. And that uh, kingdom era is going to last a little over four centuries until uh, the final destruction of the uh, capital of the kingdom, the city of Jerusalem, in 586, when a man named King Zedekiah is king, and the nation is completely destroyed and taken into exile. And the reason we're going back to this era uh, of what's it's sort of an era, what I call prophets and priests and kings, these three major leadership roles, 
uh, in the kingdom. The reason we're going back is not just to better understand the story of Israel, which in turn helps us understand the big picture story the Bible is telling for all of our lives, but we're going back and looking at 10 key turning points in this story um, to better understand how God works in our life and to extract some of the life lessons that are key to us being a part of Jesus' kingdom today. And so today, being Christmas weekend, um, we're going to go back and look at one of the amazing prophecies that comes from the kingdom era, and I'm going to see how that prophecy is fulfilled uh, in the distant future. Uh, But before we do, we're going to need some background as normal. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Micah's Prophecy, The Backstory. So if you have your Bible, um, you want to start looking up Micah chapter 5. Now, this may be a challenge in and of itself. Uh, Remember back in the days when we used maps? You remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember that. Yeah. And remember, if you're a married couple, you remember how this worked, that the husband always said, I don't need a map. I know where I'm going. And finally, after being lost forever, uh, he would finally admit uh, defeat and would surrender, turn to his wife in a low-key tone and say, well, maybe that map would be helpful. The reason I mention is that for some of you, you've never seen the territory of Micah, and you might need to wave the white flag and go to the table of contents right now, just find it. Of course, if you have an app, uh, you can just start looking and punching and you'll be okay. But I'm giving you some headway, some, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wasting some time right now, um, just because when we get there in about five minutes, uh, I want you to be ready. So let me give you some backstory. If you were here last week, we watched as, as the kingdom of Israel came to an end with the final destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 586 that led to the the last stage of the exile into Babylon. Now, this was not unforeseen. As we've seen throughout this series, many of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many of them had predicted uh, the downfall of the city of Jerusalem because uh, of the the, the sin of the nation, they predicted the exile. But these prophets uh, also Uh, Many of them prophesied that one day, down in the distant future, that God would, because of his amazing love for his people, in spite of their sin, that he would bring them back to the land. And uh, and not only bring them back to the land, but he would forgive their sin that had led them into rebellion, that he would um, enter into a new covenant with them. Do you remember that? We've learned that in the series of Jeremiah 31. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll enter into a new covenant. I'll write my laws on your heart and I'll forgive your sins. Um, We saw it in in Ezekiel 16. Remember the the message we did in Ezekiel where he he talked about, he used the parable of Israel being the peasant and then the princess and the prostitute. Like like who could forget that message? But uh, anyway, we've seen this in in Ezekiel 16. that God said he'd bring this prostitute back to him and he would enter into an everlasting covenant covenant. And then later in Ezekiel 36, we looked at the passage that said that I'll, I'll bring them back and I'll wash their sins and I will write my law on their, not just write on their heart, but pour my spirit out upon them and I will move them to do my will. And so, th- so the prophets had predicted that one day God would, would bring the nation back that he would uh, forgive their sins, that he would renew his covenant, that he would pour his spirit out. And that a key part of this is that he would raise up a great leader from the line of David to usher in the ultimate kingdom, kind of the kingdom of God. And so as a result of that, and so today we're going to look at one of those prophecies. And We're going to look at one of those prophecies from the prophet named Micah. Now, Micah is not a household name, but he lived at the same time. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. So we're looking at about the year, you know, let's just pick a year, 700 B.C., about 700 years before Jesus, uh, over 100 years before the final destruction of the city. And so now I've stalled as long as possible. So Micah chapter 5. Here we go. If you're not there yet, you don't deserve it. All right. 
In Micah chapter, Merry Christmas. Yes. Yeah. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 1, uh, Micah uh, looks off into the future and he speaks to the city of Jerusalem, the capital. Now remember, this is like a hundred, over a hundred years before the final siege of Jerusalem. But he looks out and he says, marshal your troops now, city of troops, talking about Jerusalem, for a siege is laid against us. So as he looks in the future, he can see a day where he sees a siege coming against the capital city. And they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So this invading army will humble the king of Israel. Striking them uh, on the cheek with a rod was a way of saying in the, in the kind of ancient Near East, it was a sign of, uh, of disrespect, of, of humiliation. So uh, Jerusalem's going to be under siege. Their ruler is going to be humiliated. But... Uh, this is not the end of the story. He says, but, uh, but you, uh, Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem, and then he says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, which we're not sure if that was just an alternate name for Bethlehem or it was the region where Bethlehem lay, uh, though you're small among the clans of Judah. So Bethlehem uh, is only about five or six miles from Jerusalem. And at the time, it was a very small village, right? So he says, uh, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, even though you are small among the clans of the tribe of Judah, out of you, one will come for me who will be a what? A ruler uh, over, um, over Israel. Now, if you are living at the time of Micah, when he gives this prophecy, the very mention of Bethlehem is going to ring a bell because 300 years before, the greatest king in Israel's history had come from the town of Bethlehem. So when you say Bethlehem, it's just, it just kind of like all these associations of the great king. So, so what, what uh, Micah is saying is, hey, there's, there's a time of siege coming. The, the city of Jerusalem is going to be humbled. The king is going to be humbled. But this is not the end of our story that at some point in the future, a great ruler is going to come just like David did from the little village of Bethlehem. And he says, so out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And then catch his whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, in the Hebrew, this can actually be translated a couple ways. One way it's translated is here in the NIV, New International Version, where it says like from ancient times. Like and this could even be like a reference back to like, like from the line of David, you know, from ancient times, that sort of thing. Uh, others of you, if you had like a New American Standard Bible, uh, it would be translated like this, whose, whose goings forth have been from eternity. And so we're not really sure which one Micah uh, intended. I tend to think it's more the New American Standard simply because to say it's from like the line of David, well, any king coming out of Judah would be from the line of David. That would not be unique. But either way, something is very special about this ruler that's going to come once again, like David did, from his town. And he said, uh, if you skip to verse 4, he says, in fact, he will stand and he will shepherd his flock. So in the ancient Near East, not just Israel, but, but the ancient Near East, one of the most frequent images for kings was a shepherd who would shepherd his nation. In fact, there on your note sheet, I put an example of like from King, King David's life in Psalm 78, the psalmist writes, David shepherded them, talking about the nation of Israel. So he's looking back in time. He says, King David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. And so in a similar way, this new ruler comes up and says, he will stand and he'll shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh. And so just like David was anointed by the Holy Spirit that this great ruler is coming, he's going to shepherd his flock um, in the strength of Yahweh and in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they, the people, they will live securely for catches, for then his greatness will reach to the what? The ends of the earth. So, so not just Israel, but his greatness will end to, uh, reach to the ends of the earth. Now, this is a great example 
of an entire genre of prophecy and the kingdom prophets. That yes, because of Israel's sin, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to go into exile, but God has not forgotten his people. He's going to bring the prostitute nation back. He's going to renew the covenant. He's going to bring them back to the land. He's going to pour out his spirit. He's going to wash away their sin. He is going to enter into a new covenant. He's going to write his law on their hearts. He's going to pour out his spirit uh, upon them and in them, and he is going to move them to do as well. And there's going to come a time when a great great king will come from the line of David who will usher in the ultimate kingdom. All right, so this is just sort of like a sample of many, many prophecies from the kingdom era about one day this kingdom era, which has come to an end, is going to be reborn and it's going to be led into the ultimate kingdom, the kingdom of God. All right, so, so that's the backstory to where we're headed today. And so on your note sheet, let's jump forward. Now we're going to jump forward 700 years in time. We're going to leave the time of Micah. We're going to leave him with this prophecy. We're going to jump uh, 700 years. And I want you to write this date down. We're going to jump to the year 4 B.C. 4 B.C. So we're, we're, on the, we're on the eve of what we would now call the first century. And you say, well, what has happened in these 700 years? What is the story of Israel today? How has this worked out? How have these promises worked out? And I would say, well, there's both good news and there is bad news. Uh, More bad than good, uh, but there is some good news. Uh, First of all, Israel is back in the land. When we left them last week, they were gone. They're in Babylon. Um, if you look back historically, nations, they didn't return from Babylon. They didn't return people. That This was the idea to break their will, to break their uh, connection to their homeland. So, you know, most people did not go back. Uh, where is the nation of Edom today? You know, where is the nation of Ammon today? Right? It's like, People, and so, and, but when we go, when we come in 4 BC, we've got the nation of Israel still. They're still there. They're back in the land. We call them the, we call them the Jews now because it's just Judah, the tribe of Judah that went away and they came back. And so now Israel is known as Jews, uh, but they're back in the land. And so that's a, that's a positive. Uh, they have a temple. Remember the temple last week got burned down. They have a new temple. Uh, in fact, it is an amazing temple. It's much better in many ways than the Temple of Solomon. Uh, this temple has largely been rebuilt or remodeled by a king named King Herod. Um, we call him Herod the Great. He was one of the greatest builders of the ancient world. And the temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, you may not know this. It was the largest temple in the Roman Empire. It was amazing. And so they're back in the land. They have a temple. That's on the positive side of the ledger. On the negative side of the ledger, the Spirit of God has never filled that temple like the Temple of Solomon. Um, The people are still living in great darkness. Uh, they're, They're under a rule, under foreign rule. It's no longer Babylon. They're now under the rule of Rome. They've been under Rome for 60 years, this pagan nation that controls everything they do. In fact, the, the king that rules them is sort of an imposter. He's a man that pretends to be their king, the great king. Um, he claims to be a Jew, though he really isn't. Um, he pretends to, this, this is why he's built this huge temple for them, to kind of bring their allegiance. Um, he is a ruthless man, and he's towards the end of his life, and he is completely paranoid. And and so he has already slaughtered many of his family members because he's afraid of a coup. In fact, he killed his favorite wife named Miriam uh, because he thought she was involved. And then he spent the rest of his life being haunted by her as he went through the palace thinking he saw her. And so Israel is back in the land they have a temple, but the Spirit has not come. They're living under a foreign rule of Rome. 
They have a local king who pretends to be the great king, but he's not even a Jew, let alone from the line of David. And there is no hope on the horizon. There's no suggestion that things are about to change. And so that's where we are, the start of the New Testament. And so it's in that setting that Matthew uh, opens his gospel, his biography of Jesus. Then we're going to be looking at a passage in chapter 2, but just let me set up how he starts it. As Matthew begins to tell the story of Jesus, he's presenting Jesus as the great king who's come to introduce the ultimate kingdom. That's what the story is going to be about. And so in chapter 1, he starts with this genealogy of Jesus to prove that Jesus is a descendant of King David. He comes from the right line. And then he tells the story in chapter 1 of his supernatural birth, born of a virgin, fulfilling the prophecies of the prophet Isaiah. And then as we get to chapter 2, we have this fascinating account of the coming of Magi. Now, who are Magi? (laughs) Magi most likely came from Persia, the area of Babylon, like a thousand miles away. Magi are very respected intellectuals. They often serve in the courts of kings. They, They are scientists. They are astronomers, they are astrologists, they are occult leaders. Uh, Highly respected, probably wealthy, probably traveling with an entourage. They've come a thousand miles. And they show up in 4 BC in Jerusalem in the setting I just painted. And they said, we are looking for the great king of the Jews. And you say, well, how do they know? Well, probably two things. When the Jews had gone to Babylon, they'd taken their scriptures. And so the prophecies of a great king were, were well known in the ancient world. And then they said that they had seen his sign like a star in the heavens. And they've come. And, and where do you look for a great king? You go to the capital, right? You go to the palace. And so they show up in Jerusalem, and they're going to start asking around hey, where is this great king who's been born? And the current king, who's the imposter king, who's trying to convince everyone he is the great king, he is, who's paranoid and already slaughtered many members of his family to protect the throne, is suddenly going to get very disturbed to the point, as we know, that he will eventually slaughter all the babies in, Jerusalem, in Bethlehem just to make sure which fits with everything we know from secular history about his character. Um, and, w- and if he's upset, everyone's upset because this is a ruthless leader and you don't want to get him upset. And so with that, let's, let's pick up how Matthew goes from chapter one where he introduces Jesus, his genealogy and his supernatural birth, and he kind of sets it up how he got to Bethlehem. And uh, let's walk through this passage in Matthew 2. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so Matthew's already explained how that happened, uh, in Judea, notice it's called Judea, why it used to be the tribe of Judah, which is why we have Jews, and now it's called Judea, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's developed in that. So in the time, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, this ruthless man we've been describing, uh, magi from the east, so we know who they are, um, they come to the capital, Jerusalem. They said, where is the one who's been born? Now, underline this, what? King of the Jews. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for this one prophesied that they believe has been born. And so where is he? And of course, no one knows what they're talking about, but eventually the rumors get back to King Herod, and he was disturbed. (laughs) Understatement. And... uh, because he's disturbed all Jerusalem with it. And so when he called together the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, the, the leaders of the nation most familiar with the ancient prophecies, he asked them, hey, where's the Messiah to be born? You know, just kind of playing, playing dumb. Hey, where's the Messiah to be born? And they said, oh, that's easy. And they quote this prophecy that we started the day with in Micah chapter 5. They said, uh, in Bethlehem, in Judea, 
because this is what the prophet, you know, Micah has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so, so Matthew starts his story, the biography of Jesus, with this genealogy, he comes from the line of David, with the, the amazing story of his supernatural virgin birth that fulfills prophecy of Isaiah, then he moves into the coming catches of Gentile uh, kind of representative of kings. The Gentiles coming uh, to recognize and then to worship uh, the king. And so he's introducing this story of the coming of the king, the fulfillment of the promise of the prophets that one day the ultimate king would come who would bring in the ultimate kingdom. And it doesn't take him long then to develop this because in chapter three and chapter four, he introduces us to the two key characters, John the Baptist and Jesus. And of course, uh, their message that they share, the same message was that the kingdom of the heavens, or the kingdom is coming from the heavens, uh, the kingdom of God that's been promised, it's very near. The time has come. In fact, in Mark's gospel, this is how he summarizes the message of Jesus there in your note sheet. So Jesus went into Galilee. Uh, this is right after John the Baptist was killed. And he proclaimed the good news. And it was good news. It, it was the news that, hey, this, this kingdom that's been prophet, when God returns to the nation, when he forgives us of our sins, when he enters into new covenant, when he pours out his spirit, when he sends the great king, when he brings in the ultimate kingdom, now, this is good news, is that it's here. It's here. It's starting. And so he says that the good news of, of God, that the time has come, and the kingdom of God has come near. And so he says, now to be a part of this kingdom, there's two things you need to do, right? What's the first one? Repent, Repent right? Literally change the way you think. Um, turn around. We were led into exile because of our sin. We didn't listen to the prophets. We didn't listen to the priests. We didn't, uh, our kings were not righteous. And so, so if we're going to be part of this new kingdom that we have to repent and do life differently, we did in the old kingdom that led to exile. And he said, the second thing you need to do is what? Believe. believe. Yeah. Jesus says, believe what I'm telling you, that it's really happening. And that, that what I'm telling you is, is really true. And of course, he goes down and follow me because I will lead you into that kingdom. So, so turn from your old life, come under the leadership of Yahweh. Don't do life like we did in the past. Come under his leadership. Trust me, follow me. I will lead you into that kingdom. That's how the message starts. And so what we're going to see today is that Jesus has come to bring the ultimate kingdom. And that in the process, he is going to fulfill this role of these three powerful leaders in the kingdom era. So if you've been here in this series, you know that there was three powerful leadership roles in the nation of Israel. They had different responsibilities, but three important roles. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. And we're going to see today how as Jesus comes, he comes to unite those three important leadership roles in his life to be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king who will usher in the kingdom, the ultimate kingdom. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that is called the ultimate kingdom, prophet, priest, and king. We're going to take some time, break this down, kind of educational moment, if you will. Uh, we're going to understand who Jesus is, why he came. But then at the end, we're all leading up to this one big question at the end that's going to be important, not just for today, but kind of cap this whole series. And so there in your note sheet, the ultimate kingdom, prophet, priest, king, uh, let's start with the first, the first role that Jesus came to fulfill, that what we're going to see is that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. And so if you've been with us throughout this series, you know this, that prophets have played an incredibly important, important role. 
Their role was really to speak for God, to bring the word of God. This is the way, walk ye in it, right? They, sometimes they would call to repentance. Sometimes they would promise what God's going to do. Sometimes they'll remind of his amazing love, but they would bring the word of God. This is the way, walk in it. This is the way of blessing. Uh, this is the choice you need to make. They would bring the word of God. And we've seen over and over the important role that they played. Think back with me to the very first message, which probably seems like years ago. But think back with me to that very first message and what we learned about uh, from King Saul. Do you remember way back when we learned that, that uh, partial obedience is disobedience? And, and if you remember that story, the role that, King, that Samuel the prophet played, coming to Saul, confronting him, and saying, uh, that obedience is better than sacrifice. To obey is better. You remember that. And so we've seen how these powerful prophets, how they spoke the word of God that, that leads the path to life. And so we saw, we saw uh, Samuel speaking to Saul. We saw Nathan. You remember Nathan speaking to David that out of your line is going to come a line of great kings. God's going to build a house for you. We watched as Isaiah challenge Israel about the two sides of God. We watched Ezekiel speaking this powerful parable about Israel and their, their story and how they had been like uh, a peasant and then a princess and then prostitute. Uh, we have watched as uh, Jeremiah said, don't trust in the temple, uh, the coming covenant. So we've watched as this powerful role in Israel of prophets. Like without a prophet, the people would perish. They needed to hear the word of God. The prophets were their lifeline. They're the ones who brought the word of God. But what we're going to see today is that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is, the ultimate, he is the ultimate prophet who brings the ultimate message, the path to life. What's interesting is for you and I as 21st century Christ followers, we often don't see Jesus as a prophet. But what's funny is that in the first century, this is how everyone saw Jesus. Like when they look at Jesus and they're trying to figure out who is he, one of the first categories that comes to mind is prophets. Who do men say that I am? Well, some think you're Jeremiah. Some think you're John the Baptist, one of the other prophets. Remember that? In fact, today, we started the day with this uh, amazing story about these two men who were on this road, kind of dusty road in the distance. They're, they're walking into the sunset. You can tell from their body language they're depressed that certain events have happened in the last few days that have blown their minds. They never saw them coming, the violence. And it's just, it's, they thought their ship was coming in after a lifetime of hope. Some of you may have recognized the story, but this is a story that comes from Luke 24, the very last chapter of uh, Luke's biography of Jesus. It the story happens on the day of the resurrection. So Jesus resurrects that morning. These are, this is a story of two men who were his disciples. They didn't know he was raised from the dead. And so they're, they're super depressed because they thought Jesus was going to bring the kingdom of God. They, they, they thought he was going to bring the ultimate kingdom. And now he's been killed by the very nation that they thought he would overthrow. And they're completely depressed and they're walking along. Uh, and, and so uh, what, what they don't know is they, as they, they go around a bend in the road, there's another traveler there who's going to join them. And it turns out it's Jesus, and, but they're prevented from recognizing him. And so he's just doing sort of the Columbo Messiah thing. <laughs> you know, he's just kind of, I love this. He just kind of going like, hey, guys, how you doing? You look like you're a little down. What's up? And they're like, what? You're the only one in Israel? It's like Passover. We got hundreds of thousand people here. It's front page news. Aren't you on Instagram? I mean, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, we, man, we thought he was the one. He was going to usher in the ultimate kingdom. And then, and then he got killed and we're just bummed. But I want you to see what they said. It says, um, so one of them named Cleopas asked him, hey, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? Like, what are you, a yokel um, who does not know the things that happened here these last few days? And Jesus is just like doing the Columbo thing. Hey, what things? Like, I don't know. And this is really funny. You know, they start telling about himself. And so uh, they said, what things? They said, well, about Jesus of Nazareth. Then remember, he is Jesus of Nazareth, right? So like, uh, well, about Jesus, he's like, well, what? Well, what about Jesus? And then it says, well, he was a what? He was a prophet. 
Like in their minds, like who is, he's a prophet. He's like, he's like Elijah. He's like Elisha who raised people from the dead and did miracles. It's the only category that they had from. He's like, he's a prophet. Um, and he was powerful in word, his teaching, but also indeed his miracles before God and all the people. And the, but the bummer is the chief priests and our rulers, they handed him over to be sentenced to death and they killed him. They crucified him. But we'd hope that he was the one who was going to redeem, redeem Israel. He was going to bring in the ultimate kingdom. He was going to rescue us. And now he's dead. But what I want you to catch is they saw him as what? A prophet. And the early church picked up on this. And after the resurrection and after the ascension, Peter, in one of the early sermons in Acts, as he's talking to the Jewish nation, he says, hey, Moses predicted this way back in Deuteronomy that one day God was going to raise up a great prophet like him and that we have to listen to him. And that prophecy is fulfilled. The ultimate prophet has come. The prophet who's the ultimate, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than Jeremiah, he's greater than Ezekiel, he's greater than Micah, he's greater than Elijah, he's greater than Elisha. This is why on the, trans, uh, the transfiguration, you got Elijah and Moses there, but, but uh, the voice from heaven says, this is my son, listen to him. Don't listen to the prophet Moses representing the law. Don't listen to Elijah, the prophet representing the prophets. Listen to my son. He is the ultimate prophet. He brings the ultimate word of God. He is the word of God. Amen? Amen. He's the ultimate prophet. Now, let's go to number two. But he's not just the prophet. Remember, there's three key roles. Prophet, priest, and king. So he's also the ultimate priest. Now, we haven't talked a lot in this series. We haven't highlighted the important roles uh, the priest in the kingdom of Israel. We have touched on this. Uh, we met Ezekiel. And if you remember, he was 25 years old when he was taken into captivity and in, in bondage. Um, and uh, he, we were told that he was from the priestly line of Zadok, a very high, uh, very, very valued, kind of one of the top lines of priestly line of Zadok. But we don't know if he off, actually operated as a priest, but he, he definitely has a priestly mindset. And you see this in his prophecies, right? So we met Ezekiel. Um, if you were here the week that, that Dre taught on King Josiah, you may remember this. One of the key characters in that story was the high priest. His name was Hilkiah. And while they were cleaning the temple, they found the book of the law. And they brought that, he brought that to the king, which initiated a national revival. So we've met a couple priests, a priestly line, but we haven't really focused on the role. But the role of a, a priest in Israel was extremely important. It's the priest that allowed you to have a relationship with God. Because you have a holy God and an unholy people, you need someone to stand between, to be an intermediary, and to make atonement for the sins of the people. And so every day, the priest would offer a sacrifice at the, at the temple in the morning and at night, making atonement. Uh, but the most important atonement happened every fall on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of covering, Yom, day, Kippur, covering, uh, when we call it the day of atonement, when the high priest would uh, gather the whole nation together, they would fast that day, and the high priest representing the people would go into the presence of God in the deepest compartment in the temple, the holiest of all the holy things, holy of holies. And there before God in the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on top representing the presence of God between the cherubim, that he would take the blood of bulls for his own sin and the blood of a goat for the sin of the people and he would make atonement for the nation, so the nation to, could dwell with God. And so the role of a priest making atonement was one of the key leadership roles. And without atonement, there can't be a nation. God can't dwell with, without atonement. And what we see as the story of Jesus unfolds in the gospel is that he comes to be not only the ultimate prophet, but the ultimate 
priest who's going to make atonement for us. And so we see it at the beginning, we see it at the end, we see it throughout, but especially the beginning and um, when Jesus first shows up on the scene, John the Baptist sees him, and I want you to notice what he calls out in John chapter 1, there in your note sheet, he says, look, the what? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who what? Who takes away the sin of the world. The one who brings atonement. Um, at the very end of his life, the last night he's with his men at Passover. And this is no accident that he's going to be crucified at Passover. Because you remember the story of Passover is a story, it's the greatest story. It's like Israel's 4th of July. It's, it's like how they became a nation. You remember that after being slaves in Egypt, that uh, there's a series of plagues. And the last one that forces Pharaoh's hands, that frees them, is the plague that where, where the death of the firstborn son uh, or the firstborn male of a- animal and, and people throughout the land of Egypt. But God comes to Israel, and he says the angel of death will be passing over. And so you need to, uh, you need to take the blood of a lamb, one year old, no, no defects, no broken bones. You need to slaughter that lamb. You need to have fellowship dinner with the lamb. But you need to take the blood of the lamb and put it over your door, over the top and the sides, to cover symbolically your house. So when the angel of death comes over, he will pass over you. And so at this Passover meal that represents the greatest deliverance in their history, from the greatest, from Pharaoh, from slavery, Jesus initiates the new covenant. Do you remember the promise of the prophets? There will come a day when God would forgive, God will restore, God will pour out his spirit, he will enter into a new covenant. He'll write his law in your heart, everlasting covenant. He will wash away your sins. He will put his spirit within you. He will move you to do his will. The kingdom will come. And on Passover night, Jesus, after the Passover meal, takes this amazing symbolic meal, and he, he says this was about something bigger all along. And he says, this bread represents my body. This blood, uh, this this wine represents my blood. And by this sacrifice of the ultimate lamb of God, you will, judgment will pass over and we will enter into a new covenant of the kingdom. And so there on your note sheet, he says, after the supper, Passover, he took the cup And um, he said, this cup is the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31 language. Is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is near. The ultimate kingdom is breaking into time and space. And then as we move into the New Testament, the New Testament then develops this theme about Jesus being the ultimate high priest. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about this a lot. And it says, you know, the, the old high priests, they, they'd go in once a year, but they'd go in with blood and the blood of bulls and goats, but that really couldn't provide really a, atonement. And, and it's obvious because they had to do it every year. It just didn't really last. Um, they said, but what, when Jesus came, he came as the ultimate high priest who entered in the presence of God once for all to make uh, atonement forever for those who trust in him. And uh, he said, this is why Jesus had to become one of us, a human being, so he could understand us and be an effective high priest. Because in the old days, the high priest could represent the people because he understood what it was like to be human. He understood what it was like to struggle. He understood human weakness and frailty. And so he could really relate to us and represent us. He said, this is why Jesus had to become our high priest, a human, not just to make atonement, but, but also to relate to us. And so Jesus is our high priest. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be poor. He understands what it's like to be homeless. He had no place to lay his head. He understands what it's like to be betrayed. He understands what what rejection feels like. He understands what it looks like to be lied to and let down by your friends. 
He understands what it looks like to be abused and beaten. He understands what it looks like to suffer for what is right and good and true. And because of that, he is able to relate to us in our weakness. And because of that, he is able to come alongside to strengthen and empower us to resist our temptation as he resisted his. You know, we're told that that Jesus as our high priest was tempted in every way but without sin. And you stop and think about this. Who understands the power of temptation the most? If you think of temptation on a scale of 1 to 10, like we've all been there. We've all been there. The temptation starts that we resist through 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, and then we give in at 5. And so who understands the power of temptation more, the person who gives in at 3 or 5 or 7? The person who gets in at 3 has never really felt the power of a 5 temptation. They never really felt the power of a 7. Only one who's gone all the way to the end and not, and not given in understands the full power of temptation. And he understands that, so he's able to come along and be merciful to us. And he understands what it's like to be one of us. And he can put our, his arm around us and not simply provide atonement, but be the one who understands and provides mercy. But he's not just the ultimate prophet. He's not just the ultimate priest. He's also, as we started the day, the ultimate king. And so this is where our story began, with the prophecy of Micah, that a great ruler will come from the town of Bethlehem, that, uh, whose origins are from ancient times. And of course, we watched as he burst on the scene. The Magi come, the Gentiles come to worship the king, the king of the Jews. Matthew starts his story, and then when Jesus comes, this is his message at the long-promised kingdom. It's here. Trust me. Turn to God. Uh, I'm, I'm ushering. So this is how his story begins. His ministry begins with this announcement of a kingdom, but it ends as well with the accusation that he's the king. Because when, when the Jewish leaders arrested him and they took him to Pilate, this was their accusation, that he claims to be king, and no one who is a friend of Caesar can support someone who claims to be king. And so they bring him before Pilate, and Pilate says, hey, what's the story? This is what they're saying about you. What do you say for yourself? Are you claiming to be king? And look what Jesus said. So Pilate summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? Uh, and Pilate said, am I a Jew? Like, what do I know about what's going on in your, your world? Uh, your own people and your chief priests, they handed you over to me. That's what they were telling me. What is it that you've done? And then Jesus said, well, my kingdom, it's not from this world. Uh, in other words, it doesn't originate here. Like most kingdoms start with a rebellion from below, but his kingdom is authorized from a higher power. His kingdom is not from this world. It's a kingdom coming from the heavens. And so he says, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then. And he said, you say I'm a king. And in fact, it's the the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth that everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And so this was the accusation that he was the king. In fact, when Pilate crucified him, they would put a little placard above every person's head saying, this is what the crime, they're, they're killing. So the idea is don't do what they did. This is what, this will get you killed. And the placard he put above his head in three languages so everyone at the crossroads could see it, Aramaic and Latin and Greek. And he says, this is the king of the Jews. And the irony is, is what, what, Her- what uh, Pilate meant as, a, as kind of satire and a, a mocking satire hey, this is what a king of the Jews looks like. The fact of the matter was, he got it exactly right. Uh, Because uh, after his death and resurrection, Jesus is going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and the Father, according to Psalm 2, is going to sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. He was crowned king over the universe, and so, so King Jesus rules. He rules today. This is why we say Jesus is Lord. We don't say Jesus will be Lord. He is Lord. 
And right now, that is not obvious. But there'll come a time when he is revealed, and he will be revealed in power. And at that time, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. When Jesus, as is said in the book of Revelation, he takes his power and begins to show his reign. Right? And so, and so we, we see today that Jesus comes to unite these three critical leadership roles in, in the kingdom of Israel. He comes to be the ultimate prophet who speaks for God and brings us the message. He comes to be the ultimate high priest who makes atonement to, to service. And he's the one who comes to be the ultimate king to lead us into the kingdom. Okay, so that, that's a setup. I've just set you up, all right? Everything we've done is setting you up for what happens right now on Christmas weekend, right? Now you're up to speed. Now you're educated. <laughs> now you'll understand. And now you're ready for the question. So here we go. They're in your note sheet. One final question, not only for today, but for the whole series. This is the ultimate question. Prophet, priests, and kings, the ultimate question. Now, this may seem like a simple question on the surface, but I promise you it'll get more complex as we go along. So the question goes like this. Who is Jesus to you? We've seen today who Jesus is, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate king. Who is Jesus to you? Now, let me break this down and tell you what I mean. For some people, for some people, Jesus is a prophet. Um, you probably know people in your life like this. You may be like this, but he's a prophet. As they look at the teaching of Jesus, they find it very compelling. Love God, love people, turn the other cheek, uh, uh, you know, love your enemy. And we see Jesus as a prophet. And so we we look at Jesus as a prophet, and we would say at some level that he's inspired by God. We, we might say he's, he's inspired. He's, he's, he's like a Buddha. He's like a Confucius. He's like a Mohammed. Uh, he, he brings, he's one of the great prophets of our race who brings certain truths of God. But for us, he's not our high priest. We don't feel any need for atonement in our lives. There's no sense of sin, separation from a holy God. There, we don't really, see, we feel like, yeah, that's kind of old school. That's that old sacrifice thing. That's a history of religion thing. Like everyone So we don't really need an atonement. And he's certainly not my king. It's like, it's like he's not king, but, but he is a prophet, and I respect his teaching, and I find much of it helpful, and I sort of pick and choose what I find helpful to help me along my path. Jesus is my prophet, but he's not my high priest. He's not my king. For other people, they will say, well, you know what? Jesus is my high priest. In fact, that's how I think of Jesus. You know, at some point in my life, someone shared the good news that, that Jesus had come and died for me so that I can uh, be forgiven, and uh, he is my trusted high priest, and, and he's the merciful one, and I, I sin all the time, and I blow it all the time, and I don't always listen to what he says, but I, I know that I'm saved because I have my high priest. But for us, we don't allow Jesus to speak into our lives as a prophet. We don't allow him to do what prophets do, which is to come into our lives and mess with us and to say, this is wrong and this needs to go. And if you don't go, judgment is coming. We, we don't allow him to come and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. We're big on the believe, we're not big on the repent. And so for us, Jesus is our high priest. He's sort of a prophet. He's not really our king. We still run our lives. But we're thankful that when we were 12 years old, we gave our life to Jesus and our sins are forgiven 
And so we come on Christmas, we come on Easter, we may come many times. And we're just thankful that we are saved because we have a high priest. And then for others of us, that Jesus is our king. We see Jesus as a king. In fact, he's very threatening. He is the one as king who, who lays down judgments. He's the one who gives out laws. He's the one who demands obedience. And frankly, he scares us. And we, we feel like we could never live up to his laws. So we're always unfearing the wrath of the king. And so Jesus is our king, but we live in fear because we know that we violate his laws and we know that we run after other gods. And, and so we, we're just living under the fear of his wrath. And, and so for us, they're really, we haven't really understood he's our high priest who makes atonement. And so as a result, we live our whole lives trying to be good enough to win his approval. And we just hope at the end of our life that the good outweighs the bad and somehow we'll make it in. And so Jesus is our king issuing edicts, delivering judgments. But we have never allowed him to put his arm around our shoulder and to love us and to say, I understand, and I know, and I gave my life to make atonement for you so that you could be forgiven and part of my kingdom, not based on your performance, but based on mine. And we have never felt the tender mercy of our high priest, who then is allowed to lead us in the path of life as a prophet. And so the question I'm asking is, who is Jesus to you? And what I hope you see today is that Jesus is not one or the other. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just the high priest. He's not just the king. He's all three. And that to receive Jesus means to receive Jesus for who he is, all three that we can't just receive Jesus as our prophet, we can't just receive him as our high priest, we can't receive him just as our king. Think of what would happen in Israel and the kingdom if they rejected the prophet but still went to the temple for atonement. What would happen if they, went, if they, they accepted Jesus as a prophet but they, I felt no need for atonement? What would happen if they followed the king but they didn't listen to the priest and certainly not to the prophet? You see, that these are all dead ends. We, we don't just need a prophet. We don't just need a priest. We need a king. And to enter into the kingdom, we need to embrace Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king. Amen. Amen. We don't need part of him. We need all of him. And to reject part of him is to reject all of him. He is not just a prophet, a priest, or a king. He is all things. He is the ultimate prophet who speaks the word of God and leads us to life. He's the ultimate priest who makes atonement and strengthens and encourages us, empowers us to be who we're created to be. And he is our king that leads us to life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you on this Christmas weekend as we come to worship you. We come to worship you not just as prophet, not just as priest, not just as king, but as the ultimate prophet, priest, king. And Father, as we enter into worship now, as we sing this amazing new song um, that just traces kind of the pattern of your life, we, we come today to worship you. So in this Christmas season, as we enter in this Christmas season now, as we move towards Christmas Eve, God, we want to worship you. We want to listen to you as our prophet. We want to receive you as our priest. We want to bow the knee to you as our king, that we can move into your kingdom, the kingdom that leads to life. And so as we worship you now, as we bring our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, would you build the uses to build a place where the message of your, your true identity goes out loud and clear. 
the only one who speaks to us the ultimate word, who makes the ultimate sacrifice and is our ultimate leader. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me?